The Gospel according to Mark, the 8th chapter. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. And Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribe, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. Y'all can be seated, and I invite the children to come forward. So in, in today's Gospel, we hear probably one of the most important questions that Jesus asks. And, and one of, well, there's two questions, really. Who do people say that I am? And that's an interesting one because it gives the disciples some sort of context to hear it. You know, and they say that Jesus is John the Baptist, or Jesus is Elijah, or Jesus is one of the prophets, and the important part for that is we realize that the people there have no clue really who Jesus is, except for the fact that Jesus somehow is someone who's very important. Somehow, whatever it is that Jesus is doing is something that's going to change the way people understand God and understand community for a long time to come, and for him to be put in in that crowd... John the Baptist and Elijah and the prophets, it means that at least people recognize that what Jesus is doing is important. And then Jesus asks them something that I think is even more deep and even more personal. Who do you say that I am? Now, Peter, who is my favorite for a variety of reasons, one of them is because Peter's kind of a know-it-all. Now, I don't know anything about that, but you know, Peter, Peter is very quick to jump in with an answer. And that's something I really know a lot about. And he says, you are the Messiah. And this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that the word Messiah has been used. You are the Christ. You are the one who is anointed by God. Not just someone who's been given a special task, but you are someone who is uniquely set apart by the anointing that God has placed upon you. And Jesus was pleased with this answer. And as he does so often in Mark, he said, now don't tell anybody. And then the other reason that Peter is my favorite is not only is Peter quick with an answer, but Peter's also very passionate about the things that he does. And, and Peter wants to impress Jesus by, by showing his strength and by showing his willingness to follow and his willingness to lead. And so then Jesus continues to do something he does in all four Gospels. He begins to talk about what's going to happen. Jesus says, okay, you've said that I'm the Messiah. Now let me tell you what that means. To be the Messiah means that I'm going to go to Jerusalem. 
and I'm going to be arrested. And I'm going to suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And I'm going to be put to death. And in three days, I'm going to rise again. And Peter, maybe another way that he's kind of like me or I'm like him, hears about half of this. Peter hears, I'm going to Jerusalem. Okay, check. I knew that. I'm going to be arrested. Hmm. I'm going to be put on trial and convicted and persecuted by the chief priests and scribes and the elders. Wait a minute. This doesn't sound fun. And I'm going to die. And at this point, Peter has completely shut off the front part of his brain and is reacting and begins to rebuke Jesus. And it doesn't say what he says to Jesus, but, uh, but I imagine that it's something along these lines that, you know, I, I follow you because of what I see of God in you. I follow you because you, you teach me new ways of being someone who follows God. You teach me new ways about community. You teach me new ways to be a part of this world, and I follow you because my expectation is that the Messiah is not one who will be conquered, but the Messiah is one who is going to conquer The Messiah will come with a sword. The Messiah will do those things that we hear about in the Psalms where God crushes his enemies, where God defeats the armies, where we will feast at the victory supper. The Messiah is the one who is going to put down Rome, who is going to put down our oppressors, who is going to put down everybody who ruins my day so that at the end of it all, we can enjoy the victory feast together. My Messiah is not one who is going to be arrested and persecuted. My Messiah is not one who is going to di- going to die. And surely, surely this must be a test. And so let me tell you, I'm not going to let that happen. Now again, Peter doesn't actually say this, but this is I think what I would say. I'm not going to let that happen to you. And I think there's a I think there's a precedent for this in human nature. Isn't this the plot of every action movie? You know, I'm not going to let this happen to you. I'm the good guy, and so I have to kill all the bad guys so that I can be the good guy, right? That's our, that's our normal narrative of the way hero works. The hero is the one who doesn't necessarily not kill people, but kills the right people. The hero is the one who goes around and, and says, the thing that you're trying to put on me, your culture, your beliefs, your whatever, aren't the right thing, but I'm going to, to make you believe what I believe. That's what our heroes do, right? Our heroes are the ones who conquer physically. Our heroes are the ones who conquer culturally. Our heroes are the ones who a lot of times will convert by any means necessary. All of a sudden, all the, all the movies that we like, like Die Hard and you know, all, the, all the other action movies that we enjoy watching because it's nice to see somebody get their comeuppance, it sounds a little bit different now when we think about it this way, doesn't it? When we realize that the only difference between... My heroes and my villains are what side of the story I'm sitting on. And our world's a lot like that, isn't it? You know, we we like the the illusion that good and evil are very clear-cut. We like the illusion that it's really easy to tell what's right and what's wrong. You know, it... Whatever your belief is, if you're anything like me, you believe it strongly because that's just, I don't have middle-of-the-road opinions. I either, I'm on or I'm off, and I believe it or I don't, and you're right or you're wrong because I'm right, you know? And uh, we like to believe that the world really is that easy, but most of the time we, we find ourselves sitting in this middle ground where we realize that probably the people who disagree with us aren't completely unreasonable, but I'm having such a strong emotional response to it, I don't know how to deal with it other than to argue. 
And what we, what we see in this gospel is Peter struggling with this very thing that, you know, certainly, if, if my Messiah is one who conquers, if my Messiah is one who wins, if my Messiah is one who rights the wrongs, then the only thing that he should be able to do is conquer Rome. Because Rome is the one who's imposing the wrong on Jerusalem. Rome is the one who is doing all these things to us. And certainly it's no fun to be conquered. But if you're a Roman, then Jerusalem's just one more backwater town that the Romans get taxes from. It depends on what side of the story you're sitting on. And there's something else that's really at work here that I think is important. You know, we, in the Christian tradition, have always argued a lot with the question... Who do we say that Jesus is? And if we, if we look at the variety of opinions in the world today, we realize that even though obviously we know who Jesus is, some other people really have a lot of problems, right? Some other people have a really different opinion of who Jesus is, so they must be wrong. And one of my favorite times when this happened in the Bible is when Jesus was walking down the road with his disciples and one of them came up and said, Jesus, somebody's casting out demons in your name and they're not part of our group. Can we go make them stop? You know, certainly, if they're not following Jesus, who we're with, they must not be one of us. And, and what's Jesus' response? Jesus' response is one that doesn't satisfy them. Jesus' response is, well, if he's doing something in my name, it's going to be awfully hard for him to talk bad about me later, isn't it? And, and sometimes we don't worry so much about whether they're going to talk about Jesus, but we worry more about how they're going to make us look, Right? For instance, some of you might be aware that there's a clerk in Kentucky who hasn't been issuing marriage licenses, right? And she says she's doing it in the name of Jesus. And I bet that if you're anything like me, you're much more concerned what, with how that makes me look as a Christian than, than what it really says about Jesus. And that's part of our identity culture crisis right now in our culture, is that we have kind of this, this crisis of conscious about what it really means to follow Jesus. And we think it's new. We think it's a new problem because we've got our modern issues and we've got our modern attitudes and we've got our modern things. But when we look back at the beginning of the church, we realize that they were arguing about this very thing from the start. What does it mean to be a Christian? You have to be circumcised. And you have to be born in the tribe of the Jews. And you have to be part of this. And there was a long list of things that it meant to be Christian. And as Paul, who was the one who just liked to poke at the corners of the box and sometimes just kick the walls in, Paul's another guy that I, really, that I really identify with. You know, Paul said, well, maybe you don't have to be born a Jew. Maybe you can be a Gentile. Maybe you don't have to be circumcised. Maybe, and this is crazy, maybe the God who created us is powerful enough to redeem everybody. And the disciples got so angry about this that Paul, who had been a persecutor of the church, was beginning to tell them what their church should look like. And that's when we really get in trouble, when, when it becomes my church, when it becomes my tradition, when it becomes my idea, when it becomes my preference, when it becomes my thing, rather than being willing to put a little distance between my own ideas and my own preferences and my own thoughts and ask the question seriously, who is this God that we follow? And what does God want? And we have a long history of arguing about that, too. You know, we, we had in the early church this argument about whether to keep the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, 
the thing that a lot of the new Christians saw was that the God of the New Testament was a God of love, a God of reconciliation, a God who calls people together, a God who promotes all these good things. And all we see in the Old Testament is God smiting this group and God smiting that group and God flooding this place and God giving plagues to that place. And they list all the terrible things that from our perspective we see. But what are we forgetting in the Old Testament? The God who creates and loves what is created and calls it good. The God who hears the cries of the people in slavery and leads them out of Egypt. The God who hears the cries of his people as they are in the wilderness feeling lost and alone and hungry and leads them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The God who hears their cries of hunger and gives them manna, which may or may not have been very good because it translates to mean, what is this? But, and then he hears that they want, they want meat, so he gives them quail. You know, this is a God who not only does all these terrible things, but this is a God who hears the cries of his people and redeems them. This is the God who, after he had led his people out of Egypt, led them through the wilderness, fed them with bread and meat, and gave them water from literal stones as they were gathered at the base of the mountain while God was giving them a law to teach them what it means to be God's people. We're melting down their jewelry so they could worship another God, a fertility God, because we're no longer slaves. It's time to party. And... This is the God who saw what they were doing and as Moses reminded him that he loves his people, relented from punishing. How well do we really understand God? Who, who do we say that God is? What I, what I see between the Old Testament and the New Testament isn't a God who changes drastically and all of a sudden begins to understand things. But I see a people who are beloved of God and are learning step by step what it means to be the people of God. In the same way, mom and dad couldn't be my mom and dad as an infant in the same way that they're now mom and dad and as, a, as an adult. It took us a long time to learn how to be God's people and so where God was able to, to use these new terms of grace so that we could hear them. Because when we were a violent nomadic people, all we understood was the stick of the law. When, when every life depended on every person doing their task, the only thing we could understand was this hard edge of a law that bound us. But as we began to be able to live a little bit softer life, we also were able to hear something different, that God is not just the God who gives the stick. God is the God who gives us grace as well. And that the true nature of God isn't a God of anger, the true nature of God isn't the hero that kills the right people. The true nature of God is the one who recognizes that the only thing we get from violence is more violence. That we cannot beat people into loving us. We cannot kill people into loving us. We cannot use an army to create peace. That the only thing that brings peace is love. And this really works at the gospel of our culture, doesn't it? You know, especially as we're coming off of 9-11 and, what, 13 years of constant war now where we've been killing the right people, right? And as a culture, we want to we say that this is a, a great thing because we're, we're getting all the bad guys. And doesn't the gospel 
make us feel really uncomfortable when we, when we say these words, that they're the bad guys because we're sitting on this side of the ocean. What if God's not just God of people who live in America? What if God really is the God of everybody? You know, how then do we begin to understand this God who loves everybody in a real way, in a deep way, in a way that's costly? That's the, that's the real trick of following Jesus, is that when we ask who Jesus is, and we listen to what Jesus says, we have to put down this notion that our God is going to be one who gives us the justice we want, that our God is going to smite our enemies, that our God is going to make all the scores even, that our God is going to, to make our enemies angry and us feel good. Because when we look at what it means to be the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one who is set aside for a special purpose in a unique and meaningful way, what we see is that what the Messiah is called to do and the means of this conquest is through the cross. Something that doesn't look like victory at all. Something that feels an awful lot like defeat. And this answer doesn't satisfy anybody. But... We, uh, we do, we have a habit of killing people who, who really challenge what our notion of a hero is, don't we? You know, we look at people like Martin Luther King Jr., who, who dared to say that we should live together in peace and love and harmony, and that the people that God created are all equal. Oh, no. You know, we, Robert Kennedy, we, Matthew Shepard was, wasn't someone who necessarily stood up for for a lot other than being who he was and suffered greatly for that, right? There are lots of people in our culture who we, we kill because they have the, the temerity to be who they are. And so when we hear of a God who is going to conquer through love and submission and then raise up again, we see all of a sudden a different kind of power. And we see all of a sudden a different kind of ethic and a different kind of hero a hero who really does have a chance of bringing peace. And at the, in the midst of Caesarea Philippi, a town that was named both for Caesar, the leader of the Romans, and Philip, the son of Herod, two people who were the very symbols of the oppression that Peter and the disciples were wanting to rage against. To hear Jesus say, that what the Messiah does is go, suffer, die, and rise. And in this we will have victory. It's no wonder that they didn't understand and that Peter wanted to rebuke him. And we hear then the, the words of Jesus, the admonition of Jesus in a different way. You know, a lot of times when I hear this, get behind me, Satan, for you're putting your mind not on divine things but on human things, you know, I... I slip back into that old, go get him, Jesus, because, you know, he's reminding him that, that it's really my way or the highway, and, it's, and then I remember that our God isn't a God of my, my way or the highway. Our God is a God of second chances and grace and forgiveness. You know, I slip back into that, you tell him how it's really got to be, Jesus, and then I remember that the way Jesus really wants it to be is seldom the way I really want it to be. And we, we see that the disciples represent us who are constantly asking this question and getting answers that we don't know how to deal with. Who is Jesus really? 
Who do we say that Jesus is? What does it mean that we confess Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the one who has come, the one who is among us, and the one who is coming? And what is it that Jesus is bringing? And a lot of times in my own faith life, I realize that there's, when I'm really honest with myself, I realize that there's a lot I don't know. But there is one thing that I do know, that the word of God's grace and the word of God's gospel for me in my life is that when God gets here, God is bringing something so different than my expectations and different than my hopes and different than my ability to imagine it that I'm going to be blown away. And thank God for the God who exists and not the God that my heart really desires. Amen. Hey, we've got a good crowd this morning. So, so I know Pastor Tim a lot of times has puppets. And as I was thinking about what I could do, I realized that I can't use puppets as well as Pastor Tim. And so I thought I could bring a fan and I could use it as a puppet and I could name it Fanny. But then something seemed weird about that and I decided I couldn't do that. And, and so I didn't bring a puppet, but I did bring a glue stick. We can call it sticky. I'm very creative. And the reason I thought this might be interesting is because I think you all know what a glue stick does. What does glue do? Um, a glue stick. Yeah. You can glue paper down. Yeah, you can glue paper down and you can glue other things down that probably you, your parents don't want you to glue. Maybe you can glue like, like a, a sock. Thread on it. Thread on it, huh? Well, one time, a friend of mine had some super glue. Have you ever heard of super glue? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Your grandma has one. And, and do you know what super glue it does a lot? What, what's super glue feel like? Hot. Hot? Yeah. It's really, really sticky, right? And what would happen if I had some super glue on my hand, and you had some super glue on your hand, and we high-fived? They would stick together, together, right? One time a friend of mine that happened to. And I was thinking about that while I was looking at this glue stick. And what I realized is that one of the things that we do in church is we talk about things that help us to stick together. What are some of the things that we do in church that help us to stick together? We're not glue. Well, not glue. That's right. But what, what helps us in church to stick together? Yeah, we have to stick together to sing the right song, right? If I were to sing one song and you were to sing another song, not only would Mr. Joshua be upset with us, but it wouldn't sound very good, would it? No, it, you have to make the same song together and you have to do teamwork. We have to do teamwork, yeah. What are some other things that we do together that help us to stick together? To be nice. We, yeah, when we're nice to each other. You know, in church, one of the things we do a lot is we pray together, right? And the reason we do that is to remind us what it means to be part of God's family, the kinds of things we ask for. And so we pray for people who are sick, and we pray for the world and the difficult things going on there, and we pray prayers of thanksgiving, right? And what are, there, there are two other things that we do a lot in church, maybe, maybe three, but what are some other things we do in church that really tell us about who we are? Let's, you haven't answered one yet. Um, we always pray. We do pray. How about... What do we do? Something that... Have you ever gotten glue on your hands and wanted to get it off? Yes. What do you use to do that? Um, you have to... Me and my sister, we always stick it to our hands. You always stick... How do you get it off? Well, we just peel it off. What happens if it doesn't peel off? What do you have to do? Rub it. 
Rub it with some soap and some water. With soap and water? What do we do with water that helps us to stick together? Maybe we do it right over there. Oh, you just use it in the bathroom, huh? How about in, in this thing here, what do we do right here? What do we do with babies or adults who need to join our family? We, we just dip it in the water. Yeah, we use water to baptize them, right? Mm-hmm. That's a way that we, that we stick together because we bring them into our family and God makes us promises, right? God promises that we are part of his family. God promises to always love us. And God promises that no matter what happens or what we do, that God's love for us will never change. And we promise to love them back, right? And there's one other thing that we do that helps us to stick together, and it happens up there. What is it? Um, what is it? It's when we eat the bread and the wine. And why do you think we eat bread and wine? Um, because Jesus is, is in the wine because it's his blood and then the bread is his body. Yeah, because it's Jesus' body and blood, right? And the reason that... And we want to drink it and eat it so we can be alive. Yeah, so we eat it and drink it so we can be alive together, right? Because Because when we do this together, we remember that God is with us. And the same way our family at home eats together, right? That's something that a family does. The church is a family too. And so we eat together. And we remember what it means to be a part of God's family. Yeah. Why did you call him Gluey? Why, I should have called him Gluey instead of Sticky. You're right. Yeah. The, what were you going to say? Oh, there he is. I don't know how to make the voices. Only Pastor Tim can do that. Hi. Hi. Okay, so Pastor Tim and Jane can do that. Tell you what, let's say a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gifts that you give us and for helping us to stick together through the waters of baptism and through the meal of communion. Help us to stick together, not only by, by singing together and praying together, but by remembering that everyone we come across is a part of your family and helping us to love everybody we meet the same way you love them and the same way you love us. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Can you call Gluey? I, I better put Sticky back where I found him. Otherwise, gluey. I'm... Gluey. I'm sorry. I should put Gluey back where I found him. All right. Y'all can go back to your seats.